7 today, uh, Jesus is going to tackle hypocrisy head on. And I've got to warn you, for some of us, including me, this one's going to sting a bit. For others of us, it's going to sting a lot. As Jesus tackles hypocrisy, I've got to tell you, I've been called every name in the book at some point in my life. Half of those names I can't share with you on a Sunday morning in church. But of all those many names I've been called over the years, probably the one that has always stung the most for me is when someone says, you're a hypocrite. And whenever someone levels that charge against me, I have to do a long look in the mirror and do some soul searching and say, Lord, reveal if there's something in me that is inauthentic, something that needs to change. And so Jesus is going to tackle this hypocrisy. It may be a little uncomfortable for some of us or all of us today, but it's so important. Unless we're willing to hear what Jesus has to say about hypocrisy and be willing to look in the mirror and allow him to change us from the inside out, we'll never truly be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So today's message is on toxic hypocrisy. I'm going to start in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. Say amen if you're there. There's a bunch of blanks to fill in on your handouts today, so I do encourage you, as usual, to have those message notes handy from your bulletin along with a pen or pencil. But we'll start reading together, verse 37 in Luke chapter 11. Here we go. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So Jesus went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisee, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mints, rue, and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees. Because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without even knowing it. May God bless us as we study his word today. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word. It's not mine. It's not ours. It's yours. But Lord, in your grace and love, you have entrusted it to us. Lord, I pray that you would find us faithful to have open ears and open hearts and open minds to what you want to teach us. And Lord, if you want to speak to us in a way that hurts, we give you permission, Lord, to sting us today. If you need to discipline us today through your word, discipline us. If you need to wake us up, wake us up. If you need to change us, change us. May your word transform us just as it has been intended to do from the very beginning. Lord, we love you. Open our minds and hearts to your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. You ready for this one? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Bring it on, Pastor. Bring it on, huh? Here we go. Luke chapter 11, 37. So Jesus wasn't in the habit of turning down dinner invitations, was he? You notice that whenever someone asked Jesus out to lunch or dinner, he accepted he, didn't, he wasn't in the habit of turning down dinner invitations. A lot of those invitations were from tax collectors or kind of the no-goods in society. And when a tax collector or a sinner, as the Pharisees would call them, would invite Jesus out to dinner, Jesus would normally show up and go. 
when a Pharisee, like in this case, invited Jesus out to dinner, he would go as well. So he was no respecter of persons. Jesus showed up if a high-level person invited him to dinner, and he showed up if someone that was at the bottom of the social pecking order invited him over for dinner. So in this case, a Pharisee invites him over for a meal. We're not told if it was dinner, but I assume it was. And there were plenty of times that Jesus accepted these types of dinner invitations, and this is one of them. So this Pharisee was a part of this Pharisaical group. Remember that the Pharisees were the legalists in Judaism. Uh, They were the legalists in Judaism. Uh, They were the hair splitters. Uh, They were the guys who analyzed every last minute detail of how Jewish men and women behaved in order to determine if they truly were followers of God. So these guys, they were the legalists. The Pharisees' ancestors had come up with literally hundreds of different rules that had to be followed, they believed, if you wanted to truly please God. It wasn't enough for the fourth commandment to say, remember the Sabbath day and and keep it holy. They had to add dozens of laws to that to say specifically how you needed to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So they heaped all of these extra rules on top of the laws that God had given in the Old Testament. Now, even if the Pharisees didn't want to hear this truth that they were legalists, it was high time that someone told them, and Jesus was the perfect man to do that, wasn't he? And he believed that this was the perfect occasion to lower the boom and let them know that they had gone too far. It's one thing to tell people that they need to obey all 613 laws of Moses in the Old Testament. It's quite another to add hundreds of extra laws and say, you know what, these are even more important. They've gone too far. And so Jesus is going to take a stand here. Now, it says that he was invited over and he was reclining at the table. We talked about this a few months ago. Uh, When you see that painting of the Last Supper, it's not accurate. That's not how they ate in those days. They didn't sit on chairs like we do today and have a nice tall table to sit up against. Remember, in those days, the tables were very low to the ground. And what they would do is they would recline at the table. They would lean on their left arm like this, their left elbow, and their feet would be pointed behind them away from the table. So their dominant hand, their right hand, could be used to eat off the table. And so as in the photo there, the men were reclining, leaning on the left arm, using their right hand to eat. They didn't have too many utensils. They just ate with their hands with their right hand. And so there they are reclining at the table. And as Jesus takes his position at the table, something a little strange happens. To us, it doesn't seem too strange that Jesus comes in, he makes a greeting, and then he sits down or reclines at the table. That doesn't seem odd, but the Pharisee that invited them over, and evidently all the other guests with the Pharisee, thought Jesus did something very, very strange. Verse 38, the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. He's surprised. Now, let me ask you, have you ever been a little surprised? We're going to get a little earthy here on you. Have you ever been surprised when you're in one of those public restrooms, washing your hands, checking your hair, and you hear the toilet flush, and you look in the mirror and someone comes out of the stall and immediately after leaving the stall makes a beeline for the exit door? Has that ever surprised you a little bit? You're thinking to yourself, You know what? I don't know exactly what went on in that stall, 
But from the sound of things about a minute ago, it sounded like World War III in there. So I'm pretty sure that this man or woman, they needed to wash their hands after exiting the stall. Sometimes we're like grossed out, aren't we, when someone leaves without washing their hands because that's just kind of a hygiene thing. It's a sanitary thing. Uh, That's not what they were dealing with here. When the Pharisee is surprised, he's not concerned about Jesus' personal hygiene. He's not shocked. He's not taken aback because Jesus had a little bit of dirt under his fingernails. You see, in those days, they did ceremonial hand washing. Somewhere along the way, the Pharisees' ancestors had created this oral tradition, this extra rule that spelled out a very detailed procedure for ceremonial hand washing before every meal. So it wasn't about hygiene, it was about ritual. And listen to how William Barclay explains this ritual. Large stone vessels of water were especially kept for the purpose of hand washing ceremonially because ordinary water might be unclean. Now, the amount of water used to ceremonially clean your hands before a meal, the amount of water had to be enough to fill at least one and a half eggshells. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. First, the water must be poured over the hands, beginning at the tips of the fingers and running right up to the wrist. Then the palm of each hand must be cleansed by rubbing the fist of the other one that was just washed into it. Finally, water must again be poured over the hand, this time beginning at the wrist and running down to the fingertips. To the Pharisee, to omit the slightest detail of this was to sin. How many of you are thankful that you don't have to live under the burden of this legalism? Those in Jesus' day weren't so lucky. They weren't so blessed. Jesus' host was surprised. He's shocked. You might even say he was mortified that Jesus had made a beeline for that dinner table without doing what every other man at that dinner table had done, this little ceremonial hand washing. Do you think it's safe to assume that the Pharisee and his buddies at the table were giving Jesus some dirty looks? I think so. I think it's safe to assume that. So did Jesus take the hint and uh, get up from the the table and and go wash his hands real quickly? Did he take the hint? Not a chance. He used this as a teachable moment to teach the Pharisee and his friends a lesson that they would not soon forget. Look again at verses 39 through 41. In those three verses, Jesus begins to address the toxic hypocrisy that was prevalent among the Pharisees. In those three verses, starting in verse 39, uh, Jesus brings up another form of ceremonial washing that was practiced by the Pharisees. And that was ceremonial dishwashing. They would go through this procedure of washing the outside of the bowls and the outside of the cups. Once again, not for sanitary reasons, just some sort of ritual. And, And Jesus basically makes the point in verses 39 to 41, you take such care to wash the outside of the dish while all the while there is sewer water inside the cup. Why are you so careful washing the outside and there's sewer water on the inside? It's insanity. That was a paraphrase of what Jesus says in those verses. Jesus is pointing out 
that in God's eyes it's pointless for the Pharisees to thoroughly cleanse their hands when their hearts are filled with greed and with wickedness. And Jesus proceeds in verse 42 and 43 and 44 to to level three woes on the Pharisees. This is a teachable moment. Once he tells them that God is most concerned with what's on the inside, not so much with what's on the outside, he levels three woes against these Pharisees in 42 through 44. Now, it's important to understand what a woe is. A woe could be defined this way. It is a deep moan uttered in response or of personal anguish. It's a response to personal anguish or prompted by pity for the suffering of another. And so notice in this definition a deep moan, response to personal anguish, prompted by pity for the suffering of another. Notice in this definition that there is nothing about angry criticism. So sometimes we read these woes and we think Jesus is just, he's just laying into me. He's angry. He's fed up. He's mad. And there may have been some sort of frustration and anger in there for sure. But this is not an angry thing that Jesus is doing. It's out of deep concern for them. The woe isn't motivated by vengeance. It's not motivated by spite. It's not an effort to tear someone down. Quite the opposite. Woe stems from a deep concern, a deeply concerned heart that desires for the person to be built up. Jesus levels these three woes against the Pharisees because Jesus knows full well what is going to happen to them on Judgment Day if they don't repent. Jesus knows full well what's going to happen to them if they don't change their attitude, if they don't change their hearts, if they don't allow their insides to match up with what they're proclaiming on the outside. If they don't do away with this hypocrisy and allow God to help them do that, they're cruising for a bruising on Judgment Day. And so Jesus is deeply concerned. A woe can also be a stern warning. And that seems to be exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's going to level three woes against the Pharisees in verses 42 through 44. And in the remaining verses of this chapter, he's going to level three more woes against the experts in the law, against the scribes. We'll get to those in a few moments. But let's take a couple minutes and look at these woes that he levels against the Pharisees, starting in verse 42. Warning number one, the first warning, he says, basically, you major in the minors. That's the first warning. You're majoring in the minors. According to Leviticus 27.30, God did require the Jews to give back to him 10% of their crops. They were supposed to give back 10% of their fruits that grew in their orchards. They were supposed to give back 10% of the vegetables that grew in their vegetable gardens. They were supposed to give back 10% of the grains that grew in their fields. But God didn't require the Jews to count out and give back to him 10% of every herb and every seed. But the Pharisees did it anyway. And so that's why Jesus has specifics in this verse. Why did the Pharisees go beyond what the Old Testament said they had to do? They did it because they were legalists. And that's what legalists do. They major in the minors. Instead of spending their time counting out herbs, they should have been fighting for the good of their neighbors who were being mistreated and taken advantage of. Instead of spending hour after hour separating the seeds into two piles, uh, uh, nine for me and one for God. 
nine for me and one for God. Instead of spending hours and hours separating individual seeds, they should have been focusing their time on loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Amen? Chuck Swindoll, I think, says it so well. He writes, obeying rules should be the result of loving God, not a replacement for a relationship with Him. A genuine relationship can't be reduced to a list of rules. Isn't that good? A genuine relationship can never be reduced to a list of rules. Let that sink in for a moment. Think of a marriage. A marriage can never be healthy and vibrant by simply carrying out a top ten list of rules you must follow to be a good husband or a good wife. So if there's a marriage ever struggling... You can't just give them a top ten list and say, do these things and your spouse will feel completely loved. Now, we talk about, especially when we get to chapters like 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, that love is a verb. Love is an action, right? If it's just something happening on the inside, it's not love. Love must be expressed. It must be active. It is a verb. But at the same time, if there ain't something that it's stemming from on the inside, it's not love either, is it? And so Jesus, I think, is driving the point home. That they have to major in the majors and not in the minors. We have to be so careful. We can't just come up with these rules. And that's what the Pharisees did. You carry out the 613 laws of Moses. And you carry out the several hundred oral tradition laws that our ancestors added to the 613. You carry out all these rules and you'll be peachy keen with God. And all the while God is saying it doesn't work that way, does it? He wants love from a heart. Not something that's just following steps and rules and how-tos. He wants it to be a true, meaningful, vibrant love stemming from the heart. A marriage cannot be reduced down to obeying ten rules. A healthy relationship with your kids or with your parents can't be boiled down to follow these ten rules. And certainly a relationship with God can't be boiled down to a list of rules. The greatest commandment in the Old Testament, according to Jesus, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you come to me and say, Dane, give me a top ten list of how I can love God with all my heart, I can't do that. I can't give you a top ten list of how to love God with all your heart. It's something that transcends a list of rules. The second warning that Jesus gives the Pharisees is in verse 43. He says, you put your reputation... Before your character. You put your reputation before your character. In Jesus' day, the seats in the synagogue worked a lot like the seats at Dodger Stadium. So I know Alan and Brittany went to a game a few weeks ago. How many of you have been to a Dodger or Angel game recently? Maybe a, uh, the team out in Atalanto? Yardbirds that I guess they're not coming back as of this last week. The field got flooded, and they decided we're not coming back. We're finishing the season on the road. So that's too bad. But we've all been to those games where, especially at like a larger major league stadium like Dodger Stadium, Angel Stadium, you've got the seeds. Uh, no, you wouldn't go to a Cardinals game. You wouldn't do that. <laughs> Couldn't resist, Kate. And so you've been to one of those stadiums where if you've got the premium VIP seats, where are you sitting? Right up on the in front, right up behind the... Uh, behind home plate, ideally, first few rows, right? Those are the premium VIP seats. That's kind of how it worked in the synagogue. The seats right up in front were the VIP seats. 
And in some of the synagogues, like our teens like to sit in the front row each week, in some of the synagogues, this front row would actually be turned and facing the congregation. So not only are you visible to everyone in the synagogue, everyone sees your face and it's like, woohoo, look at me, I'm in the important seat. I'm pretty cool right here today. That's what they like, Jesus said. And just like at Dodger Stadium, the cheapo seats are way up in the nosebleeds, right? Worked the same way in the synagogue. The further you went back in that synagogue, the less important you were. The further back you went, the less important you were. And so those Pharisees like to get there early and take the very best seats up front. And Jesus says, woe to you. Oh, I warn you. You're putting your reputation before your character. I like how Warren Wearsby says this. He says, reputation is what people think we are. Character is what God knows we are. Isn't that good? Reputation is what people think we are. Character is what God knows we are. Just as God taught the prophet Samuel in the days of King Saul, God does not look at the outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the He looks at the heart, doesn't he? Hypocrites are more concerned with their reputation than they are with their true character. Followers of Christ must always be more concerned with their internal character. Character is most important to God, so it must be most important to us as followers of God. One of the reasons God has you still alive today on this earth and has not called you home yet is because He's called you to have an impact on your family and on your community. Amen? That's one of the reasons He still has you here. Another reason that God still has you here and has not called you home yet if you're a Christian is because He is interested in developing your character. God is not ready to take you to heaven yet because you ain't ready for heaven yet. Amen? And I'm still here, so I must not be ready either. God is interested in character development. He's concerned about what's going on on the inside. And this earth that we live on is a training ground to conform our character to the character of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why he has us here. To do his work, to spread his word, and to allow him to transform our character from the inside out. We must always be more concerned with our internal character than we are with our reputations. Reputations come and go. But our character should be lasting. Third warning to the Pharisees in verse 44. Instead of helping people, you guys are harming them. Instead of helping people, you're harming them. The Pharisees knew well Numbers 19.16, which says, Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. Now, there were many things that Pharisees believed would defile them. Pharisees believed that they ate in a Gentile's home. That would defile them. The Pharisees believed that if they interacted in a way that most Pharisees didn't interact with ladies in public, that they would be defiled. The Pharisees believed that they sat on a chair that a woman had just sat on during her monthly period, then they would be defiled. They had all these rules for things that would defile them. And the thing that they believed defiled them the most was touching a dead body. And so Jesus kind of latches on to that example here. So they knew well Numbers 19.16. It says, if you touch a dead body, you will be unclean. Now let me ask you, if a Pharisee accidentally touched a dead body but didn't realize it 
would they be unclean or would they not be unclean? Okay? They accidentally touch a dead body but didn't realize it. Would they be unclean? The answer is yes. So if you're shooting off a couple pistols in your neighborhood and you're just shooting off your pistols and all of a sudden you find out the next day that one of those bullets hit a neighbor and killed him and the cops come to arrest you and you say, I'm sorry, I didn't realize it. Would they say, okay, you're off then. You didn't realize it, so that's okay. We're not going to charge you with murder because you didn't know you did it. Of course not. It doesn't matter if they realize it. You're going to go to jail if you do that. And in the same way, even though they didn't realize at times that they had touched a dead body, they were still defiled. They were still unclean. That's why in Jesus' time, in the springtime, they would go with a lime and water mixture and they would paint the tombs of all their ancestors. So they would stand out and anyone walking by would know that is a tomb, that is a grave, I've got to stay away from it and not accidentally touch it. And so they took great effort into slapping this paint all over the graves and all over the tombs so that you wouldn't accidentally touch it. But an unmarked grave was one that didn't have that. And Jesus says, you are like unmarked graves. What does that mean? Well, what Jesus is doing here is taking his criticism of the Pharisees and his his charge that they need to repent, he's taking it to the next level. Because in the first two woes, he was sharing with them things internally that were wrong with them, things that they needed to change. In this third woe, he's saying, not only are you guys defiling yourselves, you're defying the entire community. You are like unmarked graves. Because people come to you and they expect you to tell them the truth about God's Word. They come to you for counsel. They come to you because they want to please God and they want to do what God has called them to do. And you are like unmarked graves because they come to you because they want to draw closer to you. And when they come to you and follow your advice, they end up doing the exact opposite. By following your advice, they're actually becoming defiled and turning away from God. That's a serious, serious charge. It's bad enough when you defile yourself, Jesus says. But without even realizing it, you're defiling the whole community. That was a strong charge that he leveled against them. But once again, he didn't do it to tear them down. He did it so they would repent and change and be lifted up to where they needed to be. Well, I want you to take a look at what Jesus continues to say and what happens, continuing in verse 45. Well, after leveling this third woe, it says in verse 45, one of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things to the Pharisees, you insult us also. Well, no kidding. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all of it. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. 
When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. We discover in verse 45 that it wasn't just a room full of Pharisees at that dinner table. There were also experts in the law. Uh, Some translations translate that Greek term as scribes. That's a little bit more literal translation. The experts in the law were the Jewish lawyers back then. They knew the ancient languages that the Old Testament was written in, and they were the ones that carefully transcribed uh, that Bible, that Old Testament, so that they could have fresh copies that perfectly matched the old ones. And they knew those ancient languages like the back of their hands so they could translate effectively. They were the theologians. They were the the lawyers and they were the religious Old Testament experts in Jesus' day. And so one of these uh, teachers of the law, one of these scribes speaks up in verse 45 and says, Hey, I just heard those three woes, teacher. And when you say these things against the Pharisees, you say them to us too. In other words, Jesus When you pick on my friend over there, you're picking on me too. You pick on one bean, you're picking on the whole burrito. We're all together in this, Jesus. And so you better quickly backtrack what you're saying here. Because, Jesus, I'm offended by what you just said to my buddy, the Pharisee. And so does Jesus say, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Is that what Jesus says? Verse 18. He basically says, oh, teacher of the law, scribe, I'm so glad you brought up the fact that you and the Pharisees are two peas in the same pod. Because I've got a few woes to share with you too. And he levels three woes against the teachers of the law, the experts in the Old Testament languages. When it came down to it, the Pharisees were accountable to God because they led the people of Israel astray, right? But you can make the case that the scribes were doubly accountable to God because they taught the Pharisees everything they knew. The Pharisees were going off the deep end, obeying all these hundreds of extra rules that man had added to the Old Testament. But who created those rules in the first place? The experts in the law. And so these guys, you might say, were even more accountable to God and more condemned before God Then the Pharisees were, and he gives them these three warnings. And warning number one, you add to people's burdens instead of helping to lighten them. You add to people's burdens instead of helping to lighten them. You remember what Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, 28 through 30? I've shared these verses so many times. I can't even remember how many times I've shared this at funerals and memorial services. And in Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wow. Isn't that reassuring? Isn't that comforting? Jesus says, my burden doesn't weigh you down. It lightens your load. Switch yokes with me. Jesus says, switch burdens with me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. But these Pharisees, and specifically here these religious experts, were doing the exact opposite. Instead of lightening the loads of the people, they were weighing them down with burdens God never intended for them to carry. These rabbis, these experts, were just loading them down. And Jesus says, enough! I came to lighten the load, not to make it heavier. I heard of a certain pastor 
who would pray this prayer every day. And I think this prayer is so beautiful. Lord, help me today not to add to anybody's problems. Isn't that an awesome prayer? I got to thinking, man, I need to start praying that prayer. Lord, help me today not to add to anybody's problems. As a pastor, my job is not to weigh you down. As a pastor, I share with you God's will. I I share with you as faithfully as I can what the Word of God teaches, but I am supposed to come alongside you and help you share and lift that burden. Amen? Jesus didn't come to weigh us down. He came to share our burden. You talk about a burden. The greatest burden in the universe is the burden of sin that you can't get out from underneath. Sin that you cannot do enough good to get rid of. You can't participate in enough religion to get rid of. Sin weighs you down and Jesus comes as the ultimate strong man and lifts it up and placed it on His shoulders as He hung on that cross and said, I'm carrying it for you. Jesus is a burden lifter. So many people think Jesus adds to our burdens. No, He didn't come to add to our burdens. He came to help relieve burdens. And that's one of the blessings of the church of Jesus Christ is we share and carry one another's burdens. Amen? We share and carry one another's burdens. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they didn't do that. They added to people's burdens instead of helping to lighten them. Warning number two, they honored the dead prophets while they persecuted the living ones. Can I ask you kind of an odd question? Is that okay? I was going to ask it anyway, but I thought I would at least be nice and ask. I'm going to ask you an odd question. Have you ever noticed that people are much better liked once they're dead? You noticed that before? One of the memories that stands out in my mind, Richard Nixon's funeral. I was watching much of his funeral years back when he passed away, and I was completely blown away by the eulogies that were given that made Richard Nixon out to be the greatest president in the history of the world. And some of these eulogies were given by the same people that would not speak a single word to him after Watergate. And I was blown away. I had always heard that he wasn't that great of a president. That's what I was taught. I'd always heard that he somehow defamed or brought to shame that office of the presidency. And then all of a sudden, at his funeral, he's the greatest man on the planet. Those are wonderful things said about Richard Nixon, but how soon people forget that it was several years after he left Washington, D.C. in the shame of Watergate. It was several years before he returned, and it was Jimmy Carter that reached out to him and expressed forgiveness and grace and mercy to him. And before then, most wouldn't give him the time of day. I got to thinking about that a few days ago, and isn't it strange how things work in this world that people are much more likable and much more praised once they die? And so this is much what happened with these experts in the law. When the Old Testament prophets were murdered, just wait a generation or two and they would build statues to those prophets. And that's what they did in Jesus' day. They were building these statues and these uh, methods of honoring all of these dead prophets, but at the same time they were persecuting their living prophets like John the Baptist and the greatest one who has ever walked the face of this earth, Jesus Christ himself, when those Pharisees and experts in the law would rile up the crowd on Good Friday and yell, crucify him, crucify him, 
crucify him. May his blood be on us and on our children. And so Jesus gives them this second woe. You honor dead prophets while you persecute the living ones. Friends, we have to be careful, very careful, not to honor the dead while we persecute the living. We dare not wait until someone dies to show them love and respect. And the third and final warning, you rob people of the chance to know God by making the Bible out to be too difficult and complicated to understand. The Roman Catholic Church did this for centuries, refusing to allow Bible translators to translate the Scriptures into a language that an everyday person could actually read and understand. For centuries, the Catholic Church kept the Scriptures obscure in the Latin language so that the average person could not read or understand it. And in the 1500s, William Tyndale took a stand. He broke the law, and William Tyndale, praise God, translated the Bible into English. And as a punishment, William Tyndale was burned at the stake. How dare you make the Word of God more accessible to the everyday person? One of the most beautiful things about the Bible is that the most important parts of it can be understood by a child who has an open mind and an open heart and the Holy Spirit's help. You don't need a master's degree in theology to understand most of the Bible. Amen? You don't need to have an IQ of 150 to understand most of the Bible. You don't need to have been a Christian for 30 years to understand most of the Bible. This is God's love letter to you, not just to me. It's His love letter to you, not just to the theologian. And so what an awesome thing it is to know that the Word of God is accessible to you. And if you've ever had anything in your mind or heart that said, I'm not going to open the Bible on a Monday or a Tuesday by myself because I just don't understand it. If there's any notion in you that you cannot understand God's Word, let me tell you today, yes, you can. Because God has done this so beautifully in the Word of God. In the Bible, the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. Can you understand the meat of the Word of God? Absolutely you can. A pastor can help. A Bible study can help. A good study Bible with good study notes can help. But if you just simply take the Word of God in prayer, the Holy Spirit can be your teacher. And together, we can make sure we don't make the mistake that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law made to make this Word of God inaccessible. And one way you can look at what we're doing on October 6th is we're making the Word of God more accessible to the people of Victorville than ever before. We're going to share the Word of God. I want to encourage you to to look at this list of six this week and do some soul searching. Look in the spiritual mirror and say, God, is there anything in me that needs to change? Are there things on the inside that don't line up with what I proclaim on the outside? Is there anything inside of me that needs to change? Am I a stumbling block to others in their faith and in their pursuit of God? Is there anything I'm doing like the Pharisees or the experts in the law that needs to change? And as you go to God humbly and ask Him that and He reveals that to you, let's make sure that we eradicate every last bit of hypocrisy in our lives. We're sinners saved by grace and in sincerity and in honesty, We don't proclaim to be anything that we aren't. We're just honest, sincere followers of Christ 
Let's stumble through this life as best as we can with the help of Almighty God. And we know that it's not by my will or by my own power, but by the power and grace of God that little by little I'm being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, I just pray that you would eradicate every last bit of hypocrisy from my life and from any of our lives here today. Wash us clean. Give us a fresh start, a new beginning, and help us, Lord, to point our neighbors, our family, our friends, our co-workers, our classmates, anyone that comes into our sphere of influence, Lord, may we point them to you and lift you up high. Help us to be responsive to your rebukes and your corrections. And Lord, I just pray that you would wash us clean today in the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.